Good morning. Children are dismissed at this time. The rest of you are encouraged to take out a copy of God's Word and to open back up to John's Gospel, chapter 19. You're stuck with me for the full time today because you have no choir to look forward to following me. Wasn't last week so good, though? Thank you again, choir. Believe it or not, last week actually was a short sermon, so I'll do my best to make up for that this week. (laughs) Kidding. We're going to consider verses 28 through 37 this morning. I didn't get as far as I wanted to. It's all right. Page 906 in the Pew Bible. We are not finished with it is finished. I'll spare you a whole sermon on verse 30. Though these are the greatest words ever spoken by the greatest man that ever lived, But I at least want to look at them a little bit more and connect them to what follows. And I want to do a better job of of drawing out, hopefully, some of the significance of these words and and applying them to your experience of the Christian life and maybe your struggles with the Christian life. So much of my struggle is rooted in my struggle to appropriate and apply and live in light of the fact of the finished work of Christ. So much of my struggle is actually a denial of the fact that it is finished. That could be the case for you as well. Let's let's see. So we're going to start with what follows the finished words to see how those help us better understand and appreciate the finished words and work. And then we'll circle back to those words at the end and we'll, we'll finish with finished. Remember, as you're reading, always ask why. Why is one of the best weapons in your arsenal of understanding God's word. Always ask why. Read and then ask, why is that there? Details, details. John includes here another detail that no one else does. Why? We know that his overall purpose is belief, that you may believe and live. We all want to live. That is in some way dependent on Christ's death. And for some reason, it is right here at this strange detail that John breaks the fourth wall and begins to speak directly to you for the first time in this book. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you may also believe. Why does he do that here? That's what I want to sort out with you to hopefully help us better appreciate the fullness of the work of Christ, and also then better appreciate the finishedness, I made up a word, the finishedness of the work of Christ, that we may better rest and trust in and enjoy the fullness and the finishedness of the work of Christ. We're approaching the end of the year, obviously. It's the most wonderful time of year. For me, a Christmas Scrooge, the most wonderful part of this time of the year is reading everyone's favorite books of the year list. I love, I love those things. People put on their blogs 10 favorite books of the year, and then I jot those all down, and then I go get them to, to read them. Uh, but I've been reviewing my own reading list to try and figure out what I enjoyed most this year, and I, I underline in my books to remember key parts, and then the really good stuff that I want to make sure I can remember and find, I then write it in the back. So I'll put a page number and a kind of a short note reminding me of what it was so that I can go back and, and remember what I read. So I was going back through a preaching book I read this week, uh, Francis J. Grimke, such a fascinating figure. Look him up. 
a former slave turned Presbyterian minister, writing in the Jim Crow era, says this. He says, the most serious problem with which any human being has to deal is the problem of getting out from under the power of sin and getting into right relationship with God. Here it is. The man who finds Jesus Christ, who finds him truly, has found the solution to all his problems. I love that so much because it is so true. And so few people are willing to say such a thing today. And so few people are really uh, willing to believe such a thing today. All your problems, he claims the solution is found in finding Christ. In finding the it is finished Christ. What if that's actually true? What if the solution to all your problems are, are right here? Right before your eyes, right now, in God's word, particularly the revelation of his son and his work. Well, let's start by fixing before our eyes what our real problem actually is. I think that's much of what John is doing here in our text with this strange detail. I'll explain that. But I think these verses uniquely reveal to us the seriousness of our condition and thus also the significance of Christ's work. We have so little appreciation of the weight and the wretchedness of sin that we end up with little appreciation of the fullness and finishedness of the work required by that sin. And because we little appreciate our true problem, we end up over-appreciating our other problems. I want us to focus on our true problem this morning. We, we talked about the strange persistence of guilt last week. That's generally all we think about when we think about sin, but that's not the whole sin story. Here's what I want you to keep in mind. My goal this morning is to convince you that you're much worse than you think that you are, and then to convince you that Christ is much more gracious than you think that he is. So here's what I want you to keep in mind as we go. You were, or you are, if you don't know the Lord, you were or are guilty, filthy, and dead. Guilty, filthy, and dead. Merry Christmas. Guilty, filthy, and dead. That's, that's sin. That's our problem. That's what Christ has come to fix and finish. I think John is pointing us in that direction. I'll, I'll try to make my case in a second. We're going to walk through five headings. Uh, John is focused here on these two sections. I tried to do them together, and I failed. I desperately wanted to have the resurrection of Christ on Christmas Sunday. And I failed. I couldn't get there. So we get the burial of Christ on Christmas Sunday. So I'm actually looking forward to that as well. But in these two sections, John is focused on the body of Christ. What happened to the body? That's what these two sections are about. And, and why does that matter? Five headings for today. Nothing fancy. Dead, blood, water, witness, finished. That's all we're doing. You were guilty, filthy, and dead. Christ died. Blood and water out of his side. John witnessed this and wants you to believe this. And it is in all of this that it is finished. All of this is the solution to all of your problems. So let's read our text. John 19, I will begin reading in verse 28, though we'll focus on 31 through 37. I want that it is finished in your head this whole time. So John 19, 28 through 37, pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Bow with me. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help in this time. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you are the God of words. You have made us to know you and to be known by you and to relate to you through words. Father, we have seriously separated ourselves from you in our sin. Father, how wonderful that you still speak to us. You call us to return to you. You reveal to us what Christ has done that we uh, might return to you. Father, I ask that you would show us the seriousness of our condition this morning. I ask that you would do that to better help us understand and appreciate and love the significance of Christ's work in our place. Father, help us to understand this word accurately. Help me to get out of the way and preach Christ and him crucified. I pray that you would draw us to him in this time. Father, I cannot do that, but you can. And so we ask that you would show us Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. All right, first point, dead. Look first at verse 30. We'll come back to it is finished at the end. The whole point of this sermon is to help us better understand and apply it is finished. But we didn't give much consideration to what follows the finished. Look at what it says. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There is the death of Christ. There is the death of the author of life. The moment on which everything hangs and hinges. And so we'd probably expect great spectacle and, and, and great drama. Nope. Bowed his head. Gave up his spirit. That's it. You've heard the phrase, give up the ghost. That actually comes from here. The King James reads, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I like the alliteration there. But ghost is just an old, largely, no longer used way to say soul or spirit. Same thing. We used to talk about the Holy Ghost. Not so much anymore. We say the, the Holy Spirit. And same idea. But it's not the ghost part that interests us here. It's the gave part. Maybe we'll save some gave for next week, Christmas Sunday. I'm sure you remember that I did this last Christmas Sunday. But this is, again, one of John's favorite words. Ditto me, give, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gives, grace gives over and over again. John draws our attention to the giving of God. But to give something, you have to possess that something. You have to have power 
and authority over that something. I cannot give you a million dollars. I do not have a million dollars. I do not have the power and the authority over that. You have to have it and possess it. And so what John is drawing your attention to here is again the control of the Christ even on the cross. No one took anything from him. He is not the unwilling passive victim here. He is the conquering king, conquering even on the cross, specifically through the cross. And so no one took his spirit from him. He gave up his spirit. And he had told us about this already. 1017. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Yeah, well, who speaks like that? Consider this Christ. Who gets to say things like that? But he is talking there in John 10 about here in John 19. He finishes the work. He knows that he has finished the work and he gives up his spirit. He is in complete control. And that control and the true nature of the work is what is emphasized in the strange detail that follows. Look at verse 31. The day of preparation is the day of preparation for the Sabbath. It's a high day. That means it's not just a regular Sabbath, but this is Passover week as well. Um, It's preparation for the Sabbath. So this is Friday. Sabbath begins at sundown on that Friday. So they need to hurry this thing up. Crucifixion was often an excruciatingly long process. People could hang there for days. And the Romans didn't care. That was part of the point. This was a graphic warning. Hey, don't mess with us. This is what happens to the enemies of Rome. The Jews, however, the religious authorities, they know their own laws. They are meticulously and hypocritically observant of many of the external details of that law, while we've seen them just have no problem breaking all kinds of moral laws to condemn and and put this innocent man to death. But they know, Deuteronomy 21-23, a hanged man is cursed by God. That is what is happening to Christ. He is being cursed by God. But that law goes on to say that a body is not to be left overnight on a tree so as not to defile the land. And since work cannot be done on the Sabbath, they want the criminal's legs broken to expedite their deaths. This was actually a a brutal mercy. There was even a name for this specific practice, crurifragium. That literally just translates as Breaking the leg bone. There's apparently a heavy metal band named Crew Refragium today. That's disturbing. But they would take a heavy mallet. It would shatter the shins. And that would prevent the victim from pushing themselves up to catch a breath so that they would suffocate and die more quickly. Verse 32. Remember from verse 38 that Jesus is in the middle, two criminals on either side of him. So are there two soldiers breaking their legs or they do one and they skip the other? They break their legs. Verse 33, they come to Jesus. The Jesus who has already given up his spirit according to his own timing. No need to break his legs. He's already dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. what, what, What most plagues you right now? What most bothers you? What is your uh, perceived biggest 
problem. If you had to list the one thing most bothering and upsetting you, what would it be? It does not compare to dead. You were dead. Christ is dead. His death has something to do with your death. How? Point number two. Blood is how. Look at verse 34. This is, this is our focus this morning. This is the strange detail. Here's what we're at. Again, why is this here? What does this mean? 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over the blood and water that was spilled. I will not be able to summarize it all for you. I will not be able to solve it all for you. Medically, it's hard to say what exactly is going on here. Uh, talk to Dr. Tabitha or Nurse Ruth. There have been all kinds of studies about this. Some have tried to argue that the spear pierced, pierced the heart. Now, some have even embarrassingly and foolishly gone as far to say that Jesus died of a broken heart. So that's really dumb. I, I cannot communicate to you how much I dislike that. Um, don't sentimentalize and say stupid things about the most serious and significant thing that has ever happened. Jesus did not die of a broken heart. We've just seen him give up his spirit. We've just seen him finish the work. But some do try and argue that his, his physical heart was, was physically pierced by this spear. That would explain the blood, obviously. And then advocates of this position will point out that there is also something called the, the pericardial sac. Peri means around, cardia means heart. So it's this, it's this sac, small uh, sac, uh, around, surrounding the heart, and it contains a clear liquid. So the theory is that the heart and the sac were both pierced and outflow the blood and the pericardial fluid. Tabitha's already shaking her head, right? She, she's right. The only problem is there's about a shot's glass worth of this pericardial fluid around the heart. And there have actually been studies on cadavers and things where it's been shown that it's unlikely that such a small amount of fluid would actually flow out of a wound and would actually just kind of flow down into the, uh, the, the body and the cavity. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it seems quite unlikely. Uh, some theorize that in the course of uh, this whole long, excruciating process, the lungs, as he's, as he's exhausted and as he's not breathing, the lungs have been filling with blood and fluid, and studies have been shown that this, to say that sometimes this can begin to separate out with the clearer and lighter plasma on top and the heavier and the red blood cells on the bottom. So maybe he's pierced towards the bottom of the lungs, outflows the darker, heavier red, and then comes uh, the lighter, clearer fluid looking like blood and water. Here's the point. I have no idea. I have no idea biologically and medically what is happening here. I'll let the medical experts continue to argue about it. No one can agree. And maybe this isn't even the point. Maybe, maybe the blood and the water aren't even all that important. Well, hold on. That can't be. That can't be the case. Because look at verse 35. Here it is. He who saw it, this, this last weird, strange detail, pierced blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. This will be our fourth point, but it's, it's this statement following directly after the water and the blood that is so striking. Think about it. John has been with Jesus from the beginning. John has witnessed everything, all sorts of spiritual, supernatural, significant things. He saw Jesus turn water to wine. 
He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus heal a man blind from birth with the washing of water. Water, water, everywhere. Hold that thought. He even saw, just a week ago, he saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave. He witnessed death to life. And yet, this is the first time, this is the point, in which John himself breaks in and enters himself into the narrative and speaks to you. I saw this. I witnessed it. My testimony is, is true. It's, it's for you. The blood and the water must be significant. Plus, in his first letter, John specifically mentions them again. 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's got to be important. But what does it mean? Well, that's, that's a good question. Our Catholic friends, following many of the early church fathers, will tell us that the blood and the water are symbolic of the sacraments of Eucharist and baptism. Hey, you can see the connection. You can understand why they would go that route. It is, however, quite unlikely, as John never refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper by these terms. In fact, John doesn't refer to the Lord's Supper at all in his whole book. His is the only gospel that does not include the institution of the Lord's Supper the, the night before this. So it seems unlikely that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's very cryptically referring to the sacraments here for the first time. It's just, it, that can't be what it is. Now, most of our other Protestant friends probably overcorrect. Understandably, again, they recognize that there's no reason to go the sacrament route. And they'll then argue that there is no symbolic significance to the blood and the water. They do rightly point out that this is just further proof that Jesus was actually a man and that he actually died. This, of course, is really important. It's possible that John is writing in part to, to combat this, this growing early church heresy. We've, we've talked about it before, docetism. The, the name comes from the Greek word dokeo, which just means to, to seem or to appear. They believed that Jesus only seemed or appeared to be a man, but he wasn't actually physically a man. Right? Spiritual is good, physical is bad in their worldview. There's no way the God of pure spirit would condescend and, and taint himself with physical flesh. So Jesus wasn't really a man with a real body, he just appeared that way. And so John's going out of his way to, to make it very clear that the Son of God did take on flesh. He did suffer in that flesh. He did die in that flesh. This whole section, remember, is about his body. It was pierced. Blood and water, it was buried. Yeah, that, all that's completely true. But the significance John gives to the blood and the water here, and in his first letter, lead me to think that it's likely that there is more going on here, that there maybe is some symbolic significance to the blood and the water. Go back to the text. Skip 35 for now and look at 36 and 37. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So remember last week, Christ is fulfilling. That was our first point. And that's true in so many ways. He's literally fulfilling in that he is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, it seems that the first one here is, is likely a reference to Psalm 34, verse 20. 
When I wrote about Psalm 34 back in May, I said it was about the good life. It's about the good life bound up entirely in the good God. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the whole point is that God is the chief good thing. We are meant to taste and see and know and experience that God is good. Our, our fulfillment is found only in him. So I'm always considering and examining, and you should be as well. Right? Are, are we actually seeking our good in God? Or do we like the idea of the forgiveness of sins and no hell, but are actually then seeking our good in some other thing, something that we've been convinced we must have to have the good life? God is good. God and knowing and, and being known by God is the only thing that will ultimately and unfailingly satisfy and fulfill you. So Christ is literally fulfilling these texts, but he's also spiritually fulfilling and that he's the only one who will fill you up, who will satisfy you and give you all that it is that you are so prone to still look for elsewhere. Psalm 34, 18 and 19. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What a God. That's the transcendent sovereign king of the universe. Near to the brokenhearted, saving the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, the Lord delivers him out of them all. Here it is, Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So again, if, if that's what John is referencing and that's what Christ is fulfilling, maybe it's, here's just, just the, the kind and, and providential a care that God demonstrates even for the body of his now dead and suffering righteous servant. But it's also possible that John is here referring to Exodus 12:46 or to Numbers 9:12, both of which are about the Passover lamb. You shall not break any of its bones. Now I think we're getting somewhere. Remember the context of this whole thing has been the Passover. We just read it in verse 31, the day of preparation. The day of preparation of what? Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. 1839. Pilate says, You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Substitution. Jesus takes Barabbas' place. John 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Tabitha, why don't you come check on Jalen over here? You all right, Jalen? I'm going to take a second. Ruth, you want to come help? You all right there, Jalen? Tabitha's going to come check you out. Good. Let's pray for Jalen. Let's pause. Pray for Dr. Tabitha. Let's continue. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for providing. Thank you for providing people who have wisdom and skill and knowledge in various and different things. Pray that Jalen is fine and all right. And pray that you would protect and, and preserve him physically. Give uh, Tabitha, Ruth, anyone who helps him much wisdom in, in seeking his good and, and caring uh, for him. Uh, Father, we pray that your will uh, would be done. We pray that you would give rest and, and peace and security. Um, Father, help us to trust you. 
Help us to lean on you and, and depend upon you in all things, even in upsetting and concerning and disturbing um, uncertain things. Father, we've just seen that you are good and that you are in control. Um, so we pray that you would demonstrate that and that we would trust you now in this time. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask someone to yell at me an update once we hear something, and I'll let you know because you're going to be wondering and you're going to be worrying. So once maybe Ruth comes back or gets an update, I'll let you know how Jalen is doing. Um, but we're going to continue on for now and focus, and then I'll let you know, and we'll adjust if we need to. Um, Passover. The context of this whole thing is the Passover. Jesus loved his own to uh, the end. How did he do that? That's what we want to figure out. How does God ultimately love his people, and what does the Passover have to do with it? What's the Passover all about? I'm going to argue that it's all about blood, which is strange. So flip to Exodus 12 real quick. Let's, let's look at this text, page 53 in the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 12, page 53. Trying to understand the water and the blood, starting with the blood. You, got, you probably know the story. God has, Exodus 12, page 53, God has kindly warned mankind from the beginning that the wages of sin is death. Reject the God of life, you get death. And God makes that graphically clear in the Exodus. God's people are in slavery to the Egyptians. God is going to free his people and he's going to deal justly with their enslavers. And so God kindly warns them in Exodus 11, verse 4, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die unless, unless the provision of the Passover. Unless, chapter 12, verse 3, a lamb is taken, a lamb without blemish, unless it is killed and not one of its bones broken. Look at verse 7, Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So it's not just water, water everywhere. It's just blood, blood everywhere. Merry Christmas. Uh, Halloween is dumb. I don't like Halloween. Um, but it at least gets that blood is important. It just doesn't get why. But blood is far more uh, an appropriate symbol for Christmas and for Easter. And thus for every Sunday, Andy and I were going back and forth on, on blood hymns, which one to pick. We almost went with, there is a fountain filled with blood and sinners plunged beneath that flood. Plunged beneath a flood of blood. What a strange metaphor that is. What a wonderful and revealing and life-giving metaphor that is. The symbol is simple. We all implicitly understand it. Leviticus 17, 14. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. It's quite simple. Blood equals life. 
God tells Israel this thousands of years before we scientifically understand the body and the significance of the blood to the life of the body. You have about 60,000 miles of, of veins in your brilliant body, a body brilliantly uh, designed by a brilliant mind. We're going to talk a lot about the importance of the body next week. But blood constantly flows from your head to your toes through those 60,000 miles of veins that you have, bringing life to your body as the blood brings oxygen and nutrients and removes poisons and waste. Blood equals life. Blood flowing in you, life. Blood flowing out of you, death. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. God says, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, blood makes atonement, as the Exodus makes clear. Sin, the firstborn, is going to die. Death must be paid. God provides a substitute. God provides a sacrifice. He provides blood representing that death. God sees it recognizes that the death payment has been made and he passes over. There has been a just pronouncement of guilt. The wages of sin is death, but God, but blood, but the provision of the blood of another that deals with the problem of guilt. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Blood. Blood equals life. Blood is, is his life in our place. It is his blood canceling our guilt. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So justified means, it just means declared not guilty. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The Lord's Supper, Matthew 26 through 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness. Right? To forgive is to pardon. It's to release from penalty. It is to cancel guilt. And this all happens by the blood of Christ. You were guilty. You were greatly guilty. And this is why Christ has come. This is why Christ has died. And this is what Christ has finished. He has finished the guilt of your sin that separates you from the God of justice. He has finished the guilt that demanded the just God punish in his right but terrible wrath. That's the blood. That's what is, is communicated in the rich symbol of the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt. That's what we've just covered. But there's more. It's actually even better than just that. Because you know the line. It says sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Stains. We just 
sang it in the blood hymn that we did choose. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Here's what I want you to get this morning. We almost think exclusively of Christ's work as a single cure. No. You need a double cure because you were in double trouble. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. You were guilty, blood. You were filthy. That's going to be the water. And you were dead. And we've already seen the death. Nurse Ruth, why don't you give us a quick update real quick because everyone's distracted. Do we know anything? Just checking them out? Okay. Good. So he's all right for now. And they're just checking him out. All right, praise God. Good. So now you can rest. Now you can be at ease. Um, he's, in, he's, in good, he's in good hands. Good. Thank you, Ruth, uh, for your help. All right, point number three. Let's get to the water. Look at verse 37 again. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12, page 798. John is quoting Zechariah 12, 10, 7, 9, 8. No bones are broken. It's amazing. But the side of the Christ was pierced. And the result of that piercing was the flow of blood and water. The blood makes a lot of sense, both medically and symbolically. But what about the water? The book of Zechariah is a call to God's people to repent. It's a call uh, to return to the Lord and trust and believe in him. The book begins, chapter 1, verse 3, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And then the book consists of a number of visions and, and prophecies about what God is going to do in both judgment and salvation. And chapters 9 through 14 are really important. They particularly contain a, a number of references and pictures and prophecies of the Christ. The gospel writers actually quote from Zechariah chapters 9 through 14, more than they do any other section of the Old Testament to explain the suffering and death of Christ. Now you know 9.9, 9, for example. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. But then in chapter 10, God begins to condemn the leaders of Israel. The problem is that they are faithless shepherds to the people. Chapter 10, verse 2, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. So the people need a shepherd. They need a good shepherd. And so God says to Zechariah in 11, verse 4, Become shepherd to the flock doomed to the slaughter. And then in the rest of the chapter, the people reject Zechariah as their shepherd. God raises up a shepherd that will not care for the people. God pronounces on that shepherd, verse 17, woe to my worthless shepherd. And then finally, we get to chapter 12. And we see that God will bring judgment and salvation. 
which gets us to verse 10. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on him, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Notice the strange pattern of pronouns there. When they look on me, this is God speaking, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And we know that this text is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. John tells us our text is, this text is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He is the me, him, God the Son, the great I am, pierced himself for our transgressions. Zechariah 13, 7 says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Right? Christ is the good shepherd the people need. And he is the one who is going to be struck. He is the God who is pierced. That's what's happening on the cross. That's what's being fulfilled on the cross. But what about the water? What does any of this have to do with water? Remember, water, water everywhere. This is one of John's favorite images. I ran through it all last week. Water to wine, walking on water, healing with water, washing with water. And with all the water, I think that John has to be thinking of Zechariah 13.1, following the piercing. Zechariah 12.10, what comes after the piercing? Zechariah 13.1, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Water washes. Again, the symbol is very simple. Water cleanses. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do that? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You weren't just guilty. You were filthy. We were unclean. Save from wrath and make me pure. Yeah, sin doesn't, sin is not just this abstract out there breaking of some rule for which we are guilty. No, sin defiles us. Remember how we've seen that, that, that God himself is the, the very heart and soul of reality as, as his words wiring and creating reality, the very heart and soul of reality. As we go against that, as we sin against him, we, we sin against reality itself. We sin against his word, that which is holy and that which is good and that which is true. And so we reject all that. We, we break all that. We, we're defiled by our sin. David gets this. Psalm 51 two: wash me. Thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He doesn't just say forgive me. He does need that, but he also needs to be cleansed. Jesus gets this. Mark 7.15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Yeah, that defile word just means, it means unclean. It means polluted. It means desecrated. This is what we are in our sin. We don't only need to be justified. We don't only need to be declared not guilty. We need to be sanctified. We need to be made holy, washed, and purified. And Jesus is doing both on the cross. 
And I think that this is what the blood and the water are pointing to. John is all about signs, and he is all about symbols, and he has been all about blood atoning, and he has been all about water washing, and in here we see the blood and the water pointing us to the comprehensiveness of the work of Christ. You were guilty, filthy, and dead. You were dead. Christ died for you. You were guilty. The blood has poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You were filthy. The water is poured out for the cleansing of of sins. Death gives life, blood atones, water washes, and John witnesses. Point number three, four, sorry. All this is witnessed by John. And all this we've just discussed is why I think he includes this strange detail and why it's at this point that he pauses the narrative and he breaks in and he speaks specifically to you saying, pay attention. Remember, pay attention to your attention. Give attention to what you are giving your attention. John is saying, hey, give your attention to this. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you may also believe. Note how emphatic and, and insistent and urgent John is here. He says witness and testimony. Those are actually the same word in the Greek. The NASB says he has testified and his testimony is true. Marturia. This is where we get our word martyr. Or a martyr is someone who's willing to give up everything. To give up life itself for the sake of truth. Thus giving great testimony to that truth. So John says, testified, testimony, true. I know I'm telling the truth. Listen to me. Look at this. Look at what I witnessed. Why does he want us to do that? That you may believe. Because biblically, believing is living. This is the whole point of the book. 3.16, God gave his son that the one who believes should not perish but have eternal life. 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. 11.25, on the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John chapter 6. If you want to look there just briefly. We know that the water and the blood flowing from Christ's side cannot be about the sacraments. Because those who argue that it is about the sacraments defend their answer with John chapter 6. Verse 53. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That's so strange. We've got to rediscover the wonder of the strangeness of all this. There's no one like this Jesus. No one says things like this Jesus. He's either everything or he's nothing. He is Christ or he is crazy. What in the world does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It's not the Lord's Supper. He tells us twice. Chapter 6, verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. 
And so John says in our text, hey, hey, look at this. Look at the water and the blood. I saw it. Jesus says in John 6, look on the sun. Okay, what does that mean? How do we do it? You know, it's here. It's, it's in the word. We, we see with our ears. Listening is our looking. Faith. And faith is not some blind belief in something you know ain't so. Faith is trust based on witness and testimony and evidence. And this whole book is the evidence. It is the witness to the one that lived, suffered, and died because you were guilty, filthy, and dead. It is the witness to the incomparable one, the perfect person, the glorious Christ. He is our evidence. He's our argument, our apologetic, our defense. There is no one else like this Christ. There's no one who could have come up with or created or invented this Christ. He's transcendent power come in the flesh for wretched, rebellious sinners like us. He really is everything. He really is the solution to all your problems. And so that's why John writes and witnesses that you may believe and live. But, but how is believing living? We'll do a whole sermon on it from 2031. But uh, one more verse from chapter 6. I love the eating the flesh and drinking the blood imagery. It's a metaphor. It's believing. How does it work? John 6:56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. When you take in food, it, it literally becomes one with you. Your body breaks it down and, and takes it in. It makes it part of your cells and, and part of you. It, it gives its energy and it gives its, its life to you and in a way become one with the food. And so it is with Christ. And faith is the means. Faith is our connection to the Christ. Faith is how we get in Christ and Christ gets in us. It is the living link to the living Lord. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me and I in and it's the Spirit that makes all this happen. It is the Spirit that applies that which Christ has accomplished. And so we're always praying that as I'm speaking and presenting and proclaiming God's living and active Word, we're asking and praying and trusting that the living and active Spirit is coming alongside and working through that living and active Word. It's not my power. It's not what I'm doing. We're praying that the Spirit would work through that Word. It's the Spirit that washes you. It's the Spirit that gives life. And that's why John connects water and spirit, 836, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit. So it's the living spirit who works through the living word to make this living link, link with the living Christ happen. This is how believing is living. Believing connects us to the Christ who is life itself. And so John begs, believe. Look at the death. Look at the blood. Look at the water. And believe, point number five, that it is all finished. Comprehensively completed, absolutely accomplished. Don't worry, I'm not going to make this a whole point, but let's try and make it an application. Let's try and connect what we've just seen back to the it is finished. We began at the beginning talking about this. We're trying to convince ourselves, we're trying to believe, trying to believe that your most serious problem is sin. That's your first application. It's to work on believing that 
fundamental truth. You are much worse than you think that you are. Work on believing that. It's the end of the year. I can't help at the end of the year uh, stepping back and you look back and it's always tempting to have all kinds of ministry questions and, and fruitfulness questions. But at a minimum, I have been richly blessed in one particular way. I was actually explaining this to Jalen on, on Thursday. Uh, God has uh, used first a wife and then five girls and ministry to do many things, of course. But one of the main things, one of my favorite metaphors and symbols for what God is doing is that he's holding each and every one of them up as, as a mirror to me. And that mirror that clearly says and reveals, oh, hey, you're not nearly as great and as good as you thought that you were. Right? Marriage and parenting and ministry are wonderfully sharp tools that God uses to sanctify. And to sanctify first by showing us ourselves in our sin. I thought that I was a far better Christian than I was before marriage and girls and ministry. And God has again and again and again showed me the depths of my wretchedness. I had no idea. Anyways, that, that, it's that, that paradox of the Christian life, that the, kind of the more that you grow and the more that you know, the more that by the grace of God you begin to grow in godliness, the more that you begin to understand, oh, just how utterly wretched you were. God is kind to not show us all that at the beginning because we couldn't handle it. And he unpacks it layer by layer by layer, and he shows us ourselves. And he has been kind to do that to me because it is only then that I begin to appreciate the depths of his love and mercy and compassion and kindness and grace for such a sinner. Listen, don't blind yourself to the beauties of the gospel by blinding yourself to the wretchedness of yourself. Work hard to meditate deep and long on your sin, on the true nature of your sin. You are guilty, filthy, and dead. The death of God himself in Christ is what was required to forgive you and cleanse you for your sin. We have no idea of what our sin really is. Don't blind yourself to the beauties of the gospel by ignoring how sinful you actually are. But God, but grace. This is the very thing that makes the gospel so glorious and good. Again, the gospel is often not very good news to us because we just don't think the bad news is that bad. It is so much worse than you think. And the gospel is so much better than you think. When Jesus died in my place, he died in that guilty, filthy, and dead place. The eternity of punishment that I deserved for my countless sins against the eternal God, finished. Fully. Finished. And the point is that, this is, this is what I struggle to get, and I think what many of us struggle to get, is that, is that your spiritual situation was so bad, and, in, and now in Christ is so good, entirely by grace, grace that whatever your current physical, emotional, financial, relational, or whatever situation, no matter how bad, Paul tells us it's, it's, it's beyond comparison. Read everything. Read all of it in light of Christ's fully finished work for you. And so application, too, is, is to believe that. It's to fight hard, to work hard, to believe that. And I know that for some of you, I have told you nothing in this whole long sermon that you didn't already know. But a large part of the Christian life is simply learning to remember what we do know 
and to actually believe what we do know, and to actually live in light of what we do know. That's why Peter writes his letter by way of reminder. That's why when we don't possess the qualities that should logically flow from faith in the finished work of Christ, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, Peter says, 2 Peter 1.9, it's because we've forgotten. We've forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins, completely. Former sins finished. So remember, believe. What are you doing to fill your mind with Christ? What are you filling your mind with that's, that's blocking out and preventing you from filling your mind with Christ? What are you doing to, to fill your mind with the comprehensive and kind Christ? How are you seeking constant communion with this it happens through his wonderful word and giving much attention to that word. Focus on his person and his work. Focused on his finished work. Focus on finished. You focus on anything else and it will never feel finished. You will never feel finished. You will never feel rest and peace and contentment. But fix your mind on finished. If, if we could only believe that our problem is sin, and that sin is as eternally bad as it is. If we could only believe that God's provision in Christ, that God's provision is Christ, and that Christ is, is as eternally good as he is. And that he shows us that so clearly here in his perfect, accomplished, finished work. And that, that's, that's everything. Find Christ truly. Find the solution to all your problems. It is finished. Now believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Father, we barely begin to know ourselves and our sin. You know us perfectly and fully in our sins. You know us far better than we know ourselves. You are aware of far more sin than we are aware. You know us and you love us. And you love us so much that you don't excuse that sin. You don't comfort us or encourage us in that sin. But Father, you do something about that sin. You seek our good by providing the death that was required that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed, that we might be restored to fellowship with you, the one who is life and joy in peace. Father, we are distracted by so many things. Father, I am so often caught up in so many things that do not even register on the scale of my sin and the salvation and what you have done for me and the eternity that is secured for me in Christ. Father, help me believe that it is finished. Help each and every one of us increasingly live our day-to-day -day lives in light of it is finished. Help us to take all that we face and all the many difficulties and trials and struggles and hardships in this world. Help us to read all of those things through the lens of it is finished, knowing that you love us and that you are with us and that you are working for our good. Father, I simply ask that you would help us to trust you more and more. And we ask this only in the name of this Jesus. Amen.